the Civil War. There was a genie let out of a bottle. I think uh, Owen Harris is very fond of using that phrase. But uh, it, 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 the, the extreme militancy of Irish republicanism uh, was let out of the bottle. Because if you look at extremity, uh, notions of extremity uh, in Irish republicanism, uh, Irish republican thought, it always is linked into very abstract things. Even today, even in the 70s and 80s when you were listening to the provisional IRA uh, make statements, they're, they're, they're very abstract. They talk about these things like uh, the Irish Republic, like it's in existence. But their version of the Irish Republic has never existed. And de Valera was a younger man at the time of the Civil War, and he was to the forefront. And he's very Jesu he was very Jesuitical in his thinking. So, and, and he was, a, uh, I think, a mathematician by training. So he had this very black and white approach, and his thinking uh, guided an awful lot of people into the thinking of the, this Republican abstract. This is what we were fighting for. Instead of thinking along the lines of what they were fighting was to achieve a state and self determination. So it led people down into a war that uh, more so than even the previous war of independence was a war of emotion, was a war of, uh, of, of things that weren't tangible. What were the objectives that they were trying to achieve? Nobody was too sure. I mean, even de Valera himself uh, redrafted his objectives so that history might be kinder to him. Uh, he was talking in terms of uh, the oath of allegiance at a later stage when he was uh, a mature statesman and prime minister Taoiseach of the country in the 30s and 40s. He used to try and redraft the fact that it was to do with their uh, partition. But, you know, anybody, anybody who was uh, read through the debates and the law at the time, partition was hardly mentioned. Mm -hmm. It was to do with it, flimsy things that weren't of terribly great importance to the ordinary Irish people. Oaths of allegiance. I mean, if anything, you could argue that more Irish independence was achieved in the 30s and 40s. And as such, these, uh, these things uh, proved to us that not a lot, really, in terms of the modern Ireland, was achieved by force of arms. But because it kick-started from 1916 we seem to be obsessed with having to uh, mark those periods because if we don't, we're saying that the Irish state was kick-started through acts of terrorism. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think if, we, if we're genuine and honest about it, we admit that there were negatives and that there were aspects of that. And, uh, and that's, that's the truth of the matter. And we move on from it. Unfortunately, I think uh, when we look at the Civil War and the War of Independence, too much of the history has been written in uh, glowing mythical terms. And it's uh, you know like the way we, we want to create it in a way that we can look at it as the same way the rest of Europe looks at its participation in World War Two. Mm. Yeah, but the truth of the matter is, to be able to benefit from the history of that, we have to look at it warts and all. Sure. So we had this new state, and they had to set up an army. Yes, and that would have been a much more difficult type of operation and uh, exercise than they had really realised, because you had this guerrilla outfit. You know, it's banded gunmen, which is what the IRA were at the time. Some parts of it were better organised than others. Some parts of it were better led than others. But it wasn't that well centrally controlled. And the people at the heart of the national nationalist movement, you know, Collins himself, uh, people like Emmett Dalton, and other people who had gotten involved with it, who had military experience, knew that order had to be put in this, and they had to pull together a, a regular army. Now, that was very difficult because some of the people who had been at the heart of fighting uh, the IRA weren't just suited to life as regular uh, soldiers uh, or as professional officers. And while a person might have been a great flying column leader in a time of uh, war, wasn't going to necessarily be uh, very good as uh, a staff officer with the rank of commandant. And so it's important to realise that there were a lot of people got rank at the time in the Free State Army who had to be carried. You know, it was due to their war of independence track record. And really, they were a complete waste of space. Uh, you know, the, there were people that uh, 
suddenly found their social status elevated and they spent and also you know the, the fact that they had access to a whole lot of socializing and uh, opportunity to uh, to uh, to drink uh, in a way that uh, nobody was looking over the shoulder. There were young men who had come from humble circumstances, and you know various uh, various documents that, if you read between the lines, talk about uh, the raft of discipline problems that existed in the barracks when the Free State Army took them over. Not just within the the soldiery, you know, the, the rank and file, but at the upper echelons of these officers of ranks like Commandant General. And you were talking about a guy in his late twenties or early thirties. So in, in there, somewhere along the line, you had to have people that were capable of pulling together the strands of organizing and administering uh, an army. Regulations uh, had to be put together, uh, as well as operational planning. And this, you know, as this army was, it would have been a mammoth task in peacetime. But suddenly, in the midst of this, they're confronted with having to then to fight a war, uh, a pretty brutish, nasty civil war. Sure. And um, can you talk, tell me something about how the war broke out? Well... You know, you can. Uh, most people trace it back to the actual uh, the the forecourts, the bombardment of the forecourts. But um, there were lots of sporadic little actions happening all over the country. And again, basically, it was due to the lack of cohesion. I mean, you had the IRA, we have a tendency to look back in our history and see the IRA as one cohesive force. But the IRA was pretty much what the local commandant or the local flying column commander uh, decided it was in a particular area. And so, <clears throat> the British Army were faced with a particularly difficult situation as they were, you know, they were an organised, cohesive, disciplined, professional military uh, who were tasked with handing over their bases, installations, and barracks to the Free State Army. But or to the National Army. Who were the National Army? In some cases, uh, you had Free State troops, uniformed, armed, properly uh, formed up, marching in the gates. In some cases, you had guys in bandoliers and trench coats. And maybe they were. In some cases, they were the local Free State forces. But the, the local British uh, garrison commander had no idea who they were, uh, ultimately. But uh, they were the representatives of the new state. They handed over, as were their orders, and got the hell out. So sometimes what happened was you had the Republicans beat the Free State forces to taking over a barracks and uh, one would immediately put in an attack on the other and you had very sporadic uh, attacks happening before the official civil war around the country particularly in remote parts because an awful lot we you know the Irish state inherited the barracks that the British created uh, there were an awful lot of small barracks uh, in uh, remote parts of the country that were there for garrison occupying the country and uh, some of these were attacked and you had uh, changes of hands I think uh, uh, the landings at Phoenix were written about by a, an ex-Irish Army intelligence officer called, I think it was Harrington was his surname. Mm -hmm. And he writes, you know, he was involved in both the War of Independence and he became a career Army officer. And he writes about that, about these little sporadic incidents. And sometimes they were personality-driven. You know, one person decides to go free state, the, you know, who's a, a leading personality within a district. Other person decides to go regular, and they're both vying for power within that area. Mm -hmm. But the official start is seen as bombardment of the forecourts, where Collins could no longer, at a, a, a national level, stand by and let the irregular forces continue to be seen as a cohesive operation. Churchill and the British state were putting pressure on him that if the new Irish free state was going to have legitimacy, they had to clean up their own backyard. It's, it's a pity in one sense, because they probably he probably would have been able to clean it up by force of his personality. Uh, 
but he wasn't being helped by the, the radical attitudes being displayed within the Republican movement, particularly by his uh, his old comrade de Valera and some of the, the other leading personalities. And there was a, there was a quest again. There were young men, and there was a, there were clashes of personalities and quests for power. You know, the the psychology of it, which has yet to be properly delved into and maybe researched and written about. The psychology of the the personalities and who was going to lead this new state and how that was probably more at the heart of what led to the civil war than all of the various uh, noble-sounding notions that were being uh, trounced out at uh, Dáil debates. Sure, but still, you've got you know you've got a, a barracks there, you've got full of young guys, and you have to lead them off into a civil war. What would that have been like, you know, if you were an officer and you have these young guys totally untrained? It would have been mayhem. And one of the reasons that it didn't actually become complete mayhem and lunacy and that doesn't fully get articulated, it's only starting to uh, be addressed and mentioned in, in writings now, is the fact that the Irish Free State benefited from the disbandment by uh, Britain uh, of a lot of the old Irish regiments in the British Army. Uh, there were a number, you know, a huge amount of southern... Irish regiments, the Leinster Fusiliers, the Munster Fusiliers, the Connacht Rangers. Uh, now they were in the process. Some of them still existed for a period afterwards, but a lot of them were disbanded in 1922. And uh, much to the chagrin of a, a lot of uh, leading members of the British establishment who didn't want to lose uh, such uh, fine fighting formations. But it was to our benefit because he came, a lot of uh, experienced professional Irish soldiers came back to Ireland and went into the Free State Army and became NCOs. And so we had a reasonably efficient NCO corps. Uh, not as many of them became officers, and that was down to the fact as well that traditionally a lot of the commission officers in Irish regiments in the British Army were Irish, but they were Anglo-Irish, and going into the new Free State Army, there weren't too many that were going to do that. Uh, and the other reason for that as well was that uh, a lot of people vying for commissions in the Free State Army had fought in the IRA. And so there was, as I said earlier, there was a notion of having to reward them, even though they weren't suitable for being professional commission officers. Mm-hmm. But the long-serving corporals and sergeants who had fought in the trenches, who had uh, maybe uh, been out in the various outposts of empire uh, and their careers were ending and the British Army came home, and quite a lot of them became corporals and sergeants and sergeant majors in the new Free State Army. And they were the people who pulled together this rabble of street urchins and ignorant farm labourers to become an organised army. And uh, we owe them a debt. Sure. And... In terms of the the dirty side of the civil war on the free state side, what happened there? Well, ultimately, any civil war is going to have a nasty side because there's an emotional element. You have people that know each other. It's like when uh, it's, it's like a nasty row. We're coming up to Christmas now. People will have nasty rows on Christmas Day because with your family, you will you will be more less censored than uh, in other situations. And it's like that in a civil war. Uh, you know, you will have people who have grown up with one another, who fought with one another, being taking it personally that they're on opposite sides in a way that they wouldn't if they were like the, the Germans and British fighting in World War Two, And and even like, there was that aspect to it in the Anglo-Irish War, uh, because a lot of uh, Britons would have felt that the Irish were being churlish, and so that brought a nasty element to it. Well, that was ratcheted up. The volume was turned up by tenfold uh, with regard to the Civil War. So here you had a Civil War with a very strong emotional uh, context to it, and uh, not very not very steady objectives. And you had people there trying to, uh, to put some shape on it. Now, in terms of uh, how you were going to uh, prosecute that war without nastiness, without uh, people wanting to settle all the scores, that wasn't going to happen. Then there was another side to it. Even if you were to be objective and detached, 
the fact that the Republicans were going to try and prosecute guerrilla warfare, the Free State side realised. They, they knew that uh, the things that had worked and hadn't worked when the British were trying to contain them. So they had that advantage. So they were able to apply uh, things that they knew would terrorise guerrilla fighters in the Republican side. Also, and it's an important point to remember, while the Free State Army were um, stand accused of various uh, excesses, like uh, I think it was the, the Bally CD, was the Bally CD ambush, yeah. um, and various other incidents. A lot of that was down to indisciplined soldiers, uh, poorly trained young soldiers, because so, so many were being recruited and pushed into the fight so soon. But also, there were irregular groups, like the men at Oriel House, who were effectively Collins Squad, who were be became euphemistically known as the uh, Criminal Investigation Department. Mm -hmm. And what they, you know, despite the name, they were effectively a paramilitary uh, force tasked with carrying out intelligence gathering, uh, interrogations, and are depending, including aspects of torture and uh, and assassinations. And the, the, you know, if you look at counterinsurgency down through the years, there will always be units like that. Uh, the important thing is is how they're used. That the, the leadership use them with a degree of restraint and surgical precision. And these guys were not used in that fashion, and they were let off the lead an awful lot. They were Ireland's own equivalent of black and tans, and we don't uh, fully admit that. Maybe in another, maybe over the, the coming years, uh, the next ten or twenty years, we'll come to realise that there was that aspect of terrorising uh, one side trying to terrorise the other. And um, uh, just to, to balance it out, I mean, it's not like the Republican side were being uh, uh, a bunch of innocent poets and they were carrying out completely reprehensible uh, treasonous activities. They were trying to intimidate uh, the democratic will of the country, carrying out assassinations of uh, TDs, uh, carrying out assassinations of uh, local figures who weren't directly involved in the war and various acts of intimidation. And so uh, the Free State thinking was they were going to meet fire with fire. And as I say, it's impossible to avoid that in a civil war. That's why ultimately, uh, one, if one is uh, thinking back, as de Valera did in his later years, to uh, what led to the civil war, you know, Lamasse, de Valera, they're on record as having a lot of regrets about taking the leadership decisions they did that led the country towards civil war. It's like letting a genie out of a bottle, very hard to put back in. And probably, ultimately, the element of terror that Free State did use in terms of uh, Executing people that were found with uh, with weapons, uh, these very hard-edged, uh, arbitrary types of uh, legislation that they brought in, it was probably going to have to be brought done in such a way as to uh, pacify the country. Mm -hmm. uh, as with grandmother's side down in Kerry, the uh, Scartin brothers, who were both officers in the Free State mm -hmm. Army. They're your cousins. Yeah, yeah, they're cousins, cousins of mine on uh, my grandmother's side, and. They yeah they were murdered uh, by Republicans who knew who pretty they were visiting their their family and dragged out of their beds and shot in the back of the head and that bring, that's the other side and <coughs> this is where the uh, the emotional side of the civil war comes into play these are people that largely would have actually probably fought in the war of independence who were being shot by former comrades who were so annoyed or disgusted that they now were on the opposite side there's nothing worse than somebody who. Uh, you fought with, who is now on the opposite side to you. You nearly take it as a personal betrayal of, uh, of everything you stand for. And that's where the Civil War was at its worst and most ignoble, where people that had fought with one another were less likely to show mercy uh, to people in that situation. And they would see, uh, you know, everybody was very quick to point the finger and decide who was a traitor according to their own sense of allegiance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that's how a lot of things uh, happened uh, that led to outright murder. Now, in the Irish Army was born at that time. 
So does the memory of the Civil War still is it still there in the in the the memory of the Irish Army? Yes, it is, but uh, in a very historical context. Um, the, uh, the, the Civil War, it's an interesting one. It's there, but it's not very observable, and it's not very uh, highlighted. It's not in stark relief, which is unusual. Uh, the Irish Army like to pay much more attention to their origins from the War of Independence in 1916. As you can see, it was uh, very much uh, the army that were at the centre of the uh, 1916 celebrations there a few years ago and uh, in the parade and it's fitting in a way that the army are seen as the natural uh, inheritor of the mantle of the men of 1916 because it gives a legitimacy to, to them and to the state and it diffuses uh, emotional ire that the uh, extreme republican element have always tried to capitalise on having said that though <coughs> the, the actual Irish army came of age during the Civil War. That was its defi early defining point at that time. You could look at, at the Irish Army's history and pick out a few defining points. Uh, the Civil War was one of them. The, war of, uh, the, the Second World War, its role during the emergency was another. And our entry into UN operations in the Congo was another. And the thing about the, uh, those entrees, it's the Civil War is the one that's downplayed the most. I mean, there were all kinds of various engagements around the country where the the Free State Army performed very well and uh, blooded itself and uh, cut its teeth as a professional army. But they were never commemorated within the army because the Civil War was too emotive. So it was pretty much from a, a historical context in staff courses where uh, officers and senior NCOs would uh, be being trained for the next level up. There might be studies of a particular engagement and it would be all in a very antiseptic, very um, clinical, military manner. Uh, to, to just look at it in terms of how that uh, went about and for years even that wasn't done uh, Irish staff courses would be looking at engagements in the Second World War or other wars around the world and studying their implications and studying the, the technical aspect of soldiering from that point of view but the uh, that, uh, because of the, the, the emotion, because of the divisiveness, the civil war, the army's role in the civil war was put to one side in the early days of the state. And it took the Second World War, the emergency, for the army to fully step beyond its role. Uh, it was still the free state army to a lot of people who would have been on the other side by the time of the Second World War. And then the direct threat facing Ireland. Uh, the threat of a German invasion, really. Even though at the time de Valera liked to intimate that we were under threat from both sides, the reality was the Irish state faced a significant threat from either an airborne or seaborne invasion from Germany. And they needed manpower. And they couldn't rely on the old professional army, which is quite denuded of numbers. And there was a, a change, a redrafting of the concept of the Irish army being the army of the Irish state. And so you had people then coming into it in droves from all kinds of different political backgrounds. Mm -hmm. uh, and you had an old uh, comp uh, company, uh, a battalion rather actually, in Dublin uh, where that was made up of old IRA veterans. Now, it's interesting to know like these this would mean that the, their average age of the private soldier in that unit would have been about probably pushing 40 years of age mm -hmm. but it would, that was more important for symbolism rather than any military efficiency sure. and in terms of the Irish army becoming an embam an embamming influence or rather a, a, a soothing influence on the Irish state 
it was one of the spin-off effects that the uh, emergence period, the Second World War period, provided Ireland. The army became a social tool in bringing together people who had fought each other in the Civil War. And that meant then that the, at the end of the Second World War, the Irish army attained a status in the eyes of the ordinary citizenry that was quite respectable and representative of all strands and strata of Irish society.